Greetings, and welcome to the Cool Hand Grace Podcast. Each week we explore a biblical passage or topic, offering some insight and application, and seeking to point us to hope and direction for our lives. We also have some interactive questions available. I'm Pastor Kurt Witzig, and on behalf of the College Ministry at Duluth Bible Church, welcome. Well, today we are continuing along in our series on the parables found in Luke chapter 15. There are three of them, as you note. Uh, Last week we discussed the shepherd who lost one sheep and rejoiced upon finding it. Today we will read of a woman who lost a valuable coin who likewise rejoices when she finds it. The two stories are part of a trio of stories or parables that the Lord gives in succession, and the three of them combined to form a message that he is giving straight to the Pharisees that were around him at that time and complaining how he was being a friend of sinners. They were critical of him, and so he gave these parables as as a way of teaching them something he wanted them to understand or see. We noted last week that a parable is a short story used for teaching purposes where something rather common and known is laid side by side in comparison to something that is less common or known, and thereby teaching some principle from the common into the more uncommon so they can grasp what that means. Teaching in parables was quite common, and Jesus was very effective at it as this was a preferred means of communicating serious truth and even serious theology um, through such a means of these parables. And this was something that was even, again, preferred in Middle Eastern cultures. So the parables weren't just pithy little stories, but they were actually communicating some serious truths. Now, our parable is found in Luke chapter 15, 8 through 10, where we read, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We start uh, this story much like the previous one where Jesus likened the the Pharisees to what shepherd of you and then gave his story. And today he offends again by saying, or what woman, having the coins, etc. You see, he starts the story like the first one by immediately giving some offense. Because in Middle Eastern culture, a speaker cannot compare a male audience to a woman without giving offense. You see, telling stories involving women would be offensive to these male Jewish Pharisees because they had such an unbiblical perspective of looking down on women. Now, Jesus had a much different perspective toward women, and that comes out clearly in his life and his ministry. But first, let's look at the Midrash and the Babylonian Talmud, a couple of ancient pieces of literature right around that time that reflect some views that were common toward women. The first, talk not much with womankind. He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself. Another, let the teachings of the Torah be burned, 
but let them not be handed over to women. Another, whoever teaches his daughter Torah teaches her obscenity. And finally, here's a quote. A man is bound to say the following three blessings daily. Blessed art thou who hast not made me a heathen, who hast not made me a woman, and who hast not made me a brutish man. These views really show a negative view toward women, and they were not limited to the rabbis. Early church fathers can also be faulted, and there's many quotes found amongst them as well. It is clear that negative attitudes toward women were common in the religion and culture of Palestine before, during, and after the time of Jesus. Unfortunately, Christians have little to brag about when it comes to how women have been treated throughout the history of the church as well. But these views are not taken from the Bible. In fact, it's really interesting in the time of Christ how Luke, our author, is going to tell his story of Jesus, and he is going to consistently use parallel passages with both men and women. In Luke chapter 1, an angel appears to Zacharias and tells him about the birth of his son, and then an angel appears to Mary and tells her about the birth of her son. In the same chapter, later, Mary sings a song, her Magnificat, and then following that, so does Zacharias. In Luke chapter 2, at the temple after the birth of Christ, both Simeon and then Anna received Jesus in the temple. In chapter 4, the woman of Zarephath and Naaman the leper are given as examples of faith. We see in uh, Luke chapter 7, the raising of the dead, a young man and then a young woman in Luke 7 and then in Luke 8. We see sinners are rejected by Pharisees. First in Luke 7, a woman is rejected in the house of Simon, and and later uh, the publican is rejected by the Pharisee in the parable in Luke chapter 18. The band of disciples includes that are following Jesus includes men and women, and the women are even named. Luke chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod Stewart, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. So we see women are listed prominently here in Luke chapter 8 as amongst Jesus' followers, as well as the disciples. The poem on the men of Nineveh and then the queen of the south in Luke chapter 11, we see again side by side, men and women. Those present at his burial included Joseph of Arimathea and the women, Luke 23. And we know the empty tomb stories and the resurrection appearances are focused both on the women and the disciples. So Jesus clearly then speaks to women. He teaches women. He has close friends who are women like Martha, Mary, Mary Magdalene. He heals women. He has compassion for women. He honors women. So the negative view of women in his day certainly is not shared by Jesus or coming from him. So for the women listening, society may not honor you as you should be, but you do need to know that God created you, and you share with men all the dignity and dominion as an equal image bearer of God. Like Genesis 1 has God saying, Let us make man in our image, and he created male and female, he created them. So the image of God is both found in the male and the female. One does not image God more than the other, Both image God and both are given 
full dominion. Now, went back to our parable, the woman loses one coin and earnestly searches for it until she finds it. Notice again, she loses her coin. She's lost her coin. And the lexicons indicate here that the shade of meaning for this word is related more to the good value of the object. The one silver coin is the Greek drachma. Romans typically used local currencies, so it was a lot cheaper. It was more of expediency since many of Greek coins had already been minted. They just continued to use those as well as introduce some of their own. And the Greek drachma was considered to be worth about a full day's wage. So it's of some considerable value. And it would bear the image of a king or other such authority on it. Um, like the Roman coin that was introduced in that Palestine was had Pontius Pilate a little later. Then what did she do? The woman, she would light a lamp, sweep the house, and she searched carefully. These are three decisive actions and verbs assigned to her, all emphasizing the search. She searched carefully. This is an adverb found only this time in the new, whole New Testament, and it means diligently or thoroughly. You know, it's like she's overturning mattresses and dumping out drawers and intensely searching for that coin. Mid-East homes at that time were designed to keep out sunlight and heat, so they had few windows, or if they did, they were small. And so the, the houses were darker inside, so lighting candles make sense if she wants to see better and find something with a close, intense search. The floor would often have straw and rushes that were not often replaced, so they could be kind of dusty and such as well and, and hide any luster the coin might normally have. So this puts the emphasis on the searching process. The search itself. As compared to the shepherd parable earlier, where the search is merely stated, there the emphasis was more on the restoration, how the shepherd put the sheep on his shoulders and carried it to his home. The extent of the search is going to reflect the cost, the time and the effort that's been put forth, and she's going to carry out this search until she finds it. And that's what we see in verse 8. Moving on to verse 9, then, we see how the woman when she has found it, is going to call her friends together and her neighbors for celebration. First, it says, the text will say, when she has found it. She is responsible for the coins. It is her coin. So she diligently searches until she finds that coin. The value of the coin is reflected by the intensity of the search. Now notice the worth of the coin is not diminished because it is lost. The sheep could be wounded or its wool damaged in the previous parable, and therefore, because it was lost, be damaged or whatnot, and be of less value. But the coin loses no value by being lost. In human terms, the lost almost universally consider themselves worthless, as we think of human people that are considered lost. They, we tend to have a, a, we feel we're worthless or we really get down on ourselves. And this parable specifically denies that that assumption, that is not a good assumption. That which is lost, we see, has intrinsic value. And this is of utmost importance to you and I, to us as the listener here of this parable. And we're realize, needing to realize that God, God listener, created you uniquely and you bear the image of him. And you can think and you make choices and you feel emotions and you can express yourself and create things and create art and music. And you can sense right and wrong and crave justice and equity. And as humans, you reflect God in all these capacities. And therefore, we stand apart from other creatures. And most importantly, you have a spiritual dimension. Created by God, you have an inward draw to know him and to be in unison with him. 
So though created by God and assessed as good, humanity fell, as we know the story, way back in the garden. We ended up separated from him, from God, relationally. Through the sin and the rebellion in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve chose to assert their own volition over and above creator gods. And they moved then toward independence from him, thus creating a fallen state for all of us and a barrier between us and him. So humanity in this sense is the lost coin, but our value is not lost because we are created by God and we reflect him in the world we have intrinsic value. So no matter the sin, the extent of the fall, the rebellion, the indifference you have, the sorrow you have, the pain or the confusion or whatever you've done, you are made, you are known, and you will be searched for as we think of this parable speaking to our lives today. Now, the reason for the celebration to honor the good woman and rejoice with her is that she has found the coin. And so this is a place, again, a, coin, a time for honoring the woman. She calls her friends and her neighbors together, and the Pharisees might even think, what a foolish woman. She'll spend more on the party even than perhaps the value of the coin is even worth. She says to the people, rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Again, she's the hero of the story. She searched for the coin. She gave it full diligent search, and she understood its value and that it is hers. And so her actions are noted, and like the shepherd, she wants others to share in her joy, to have joy in community. Interestingly, she even publicly admits that she lost the coin. Unlike the shepherd, the shepherd didn't make that detail known, but she says she lost the coin, and this portrays humility really an attribute consistent with Jesus Christ. So again, we have a scene where there is community rejoicing, sharing in the joy, and with the host, uh, sharing with the joy and with the host of honor. So in verse 10, Jesus then clarifies what is involved, again, with repentance. As he says, as he sums up the story, likewise, I say to you. Thus, this is the application of the parable. We need to kind of perk up. Jesus is adding emphasis even by saying, I say to you, this is the main point. He says, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And again, we see collective joy, and again, we see repentance. But wait, huh? Repentance? It's an inanimate object. It's a coin. So repentance, then, can only be linked to being found. In fact, without the search, the coin would be lost forever. It will not find itself, nor can it cooperate in the process. It simply must be found. And what we're also said here is the angels of God are rejoicing with them. These then are like the uh, in the parable, these are the friends and the neighbors that have been invited that are part of this celebration. So, from this picture, this three-verse story of a woman losing the coin and diligently searching and finding it and celebrating, we can make some observations. The coin is lost but not forgotten. The owner remembered it. The coin, though it is lost, still belonged to its owner. That's not belonging to someone else. The coin is not hopelessly lost. Rather, it is seen as retrievable, and therefore effort is made. The coin is sought after by its owner, and the coin does not lose its value because it is lost. It maintains its value. So we then could liken this parable in this way. The coin, that is, again, picturing the sinners and the tax collectors that Jesus was having table fellowship with at the beginning of this chapter. 
The woman would now be God or Jesus searching after that which he created and that which belongs to him. Friends rejoicing, those are the friends of God and Jesus. And why the search? Well, because the value of the coin. And why the celebration? Again, to honor the hero of the story and here to rejoice with her. Sinners have intrinsic value. There is joy when one is found, and repentance is being found. So as we think of these two parables together, in both parables, it is not sinfulness that is stressed, but lostness. In both parables, the owner takes strong initiative to seek what is lost. In both parables, when a sinner is found, there is reason for celebration and in community. In both parables, the celebration is over the honor of the finder. And in both parables, simply being found is equated to repentance. So the point I want to now make as we think of this and wanting to apply this is to remember that the value of something is determined by what someone will pay for it. So remember, we are all created, all of us, we're image bearers with intrinsic value. Like the coin, God knows us all and our value, and he is looking for you. The search begins with sacrificial cost. The problem of our sin, our rebellion, our indifference, our selfishness, our lusts, our greed, uh, our lies, our hurting others and causing pain, our guilt, our shame, it is all there and separating us from a holy and pure God who is without sin and lives in a heaven that is perfect and pure and without sin also. So we are separated from this God. He is in a perfect, holy, sinless environment. We have sin about us and around us and on us. The search then leads to a cross where the love of God is demonstrated for all to see. There is a perfect and sinless and holy Jesus Christ who had left heaven for humanity and lived amongst our filth and rage and pain and sorrow and death. And he came for us, each of us, you, the one, the one sheep, the one coin, the one object he is searching for. And he died on the cross in order to pay for the consequence of our sin, which is death. He died on the cross to absorb God's wrath against all our iniquities. As Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 reminds us, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our uh, peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the significance of Calvary and the cross. That's what Jesus has done for us. He died to cry out, it is finished, telling us that our sins are gone, all of them, for all of us. All of our sins were paid for, and Christ absorbed and took the punishment for them on our behalf. He died so that all this will shout to the world God's love. As Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us, and while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for sinners. And he died because through his death, the door to heaven swings open, the barrier being removed. 
He died because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. He was then buried and rose again, defeating sin and death forever, and we know he's alive, a living Savior, and he is looking for you. It is the look of grace, this undeserved kindness that's reaching out to sinners everywhere. The search is on as God desires everyone to be saved, to be found, to enjoy relationship with him. There's a story that Jesus gives in Luke 14 of a man who's going to throw a great banquet and feast, and when many denied his request, he then said, the master of his house in Luke 14, 21, uh, he said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. And this is the heart of the Father. This is the desire of God for all to be saved, to know him, to be included in his love and into his heaven, which is a place of purity and an awesome glory. The death of his son secured the invitation, and he has paid the price, and he's removed the barrier. It is finished. So one can be found by simply believing that they are worth the look. By believing they are worth looking for, you have intrinsic value. By believing you are loved by your maker, God so loved the world, no exceptions. By believing you are wanted by him. And one can be found by realizing that their freedom from sin, their death has been secured by great sacrificial cost through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, that he died for you and it is fully paid for forever. So one can know for sure that they are loved, that they are included, that they can be in heaven forever by faith, faith alone, trusting what God has promised. God says that he loves the world, that whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. That's his commitment. That's his promise. And the integrity of God is on the line. For someone who believes in him, then they can know for sure they will never perish. So being found is by believing on him, knowing your love, knowing he is searching you. And by being found, it's really just saying, yes, I'm willing to be found. Rejecting any work or effort on your part, realizing that this salvation, this everything is all of God from start to finish and not by what we do for him. And when we are found, then we can walk with God because we have new life here and now. And we have this eternal life in us even on this side of eternity for now. And so by faith, we continue to trust what God has promised, learning fascinating things about him and promises in his word. And we can even see changes take place in our life as we are found in him. So he is looking, friends. Have you been found? You're found at a point in time. When you believe, when you know that it is enough, what Jesus has done for you is enough. He's now resurrected and a living Savior and wants you to be found and then take part in that life. And at a point in time, you can know for sure you're saved. So we trust that's true of you. We trust that this makes sense. But also we can apply this finally to the believer. 
This parable can be applied in this way to the child of God who has been found in the past, but you have gone astray in your Christian life. You've been distracted. You have been caught in a rut. You've become overturned. You are defeated, perhaps amidst sin or even addictions or other such things, and you are frustrated or unhappy. And as a believer, you've gone astray. Know this, someone is looking. You have gone astray, but know this, someone sees and recognizes your value. Yes, you have gone astray, but know this, you are still wanted. You are still, God still has desire and always has for you. Remember that nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is found in Christ. You have gone astray, Know this, you can be found right now just believing again in the grace of God, being renewed again and knowing that you are his and you have eternal life and you can walk in the enjoyment of that life because it's not based on what you do, it's based on what Christ has done. It's not based on your performance, it's based on Christ's performance and his goodness. And God is welcoming us into relationship with him in which the, his love then can start to uh, work internally and changes from the inside out. So we don't have to be emphasizing or thinking about our sin or evaluating or trying to recall it or change it or try to be something we're not. We come as we are. And even sinners that are saved can be found anew. Someone is looking. So please know that for the believer as well. It's the same at the point in time we put our faith in this goodness of God, this grace of God, and we trust his promise, and we can be embellished by his love again. So we trust that this parable, these two parables have been helpful, seeing again that God is looking, that there is now in the first parable, this emphasis on the faithfulness of the shepherd, that this is what shepherds do, the Pharisees, who he was speaking to, were supposed to be shepherds of the uh, of of the Jews at that time, but they weren't. They were rejecting that responsibility. Instead, they were separating from sinners. They were looking down on them. They had plenty of self righteousness, so they really weren't shepherds at all. But Jesus was displaying what a shepherd does do by searching for that one sheep, and taking that home and rejoicing in fellowship with it. And so he, the first parable, is demonstrating that aspect. The second parable is showing us then the value of the coin. These sinners, these these uh, um, tax collectors and such, they were, in, in the first line of interpretation, they were part of the of Israel. They were part of the covenant, but they had gone astray. They were not faithful to that covenant, and they were not spiritual Israel at all. And so Jesus is reaching out, he's pursuing, and he sees the value and so he's looking for them as he has come to, to, to seek and to find that which is lost. And as a result, Jesus is now confronted by these Pharisees, but he wants them to see that this is what shepherds do. This is part of the, what a shepherd is about, how they're supposed to be pursuing and nurturing and finding. And they're, these, these sinners have much value. They, they're, they're created by God. They have value and intrinsic value. So the Pharisees should have been convicted and challenged in their thinking by these two points. And next week, the parable will bring out, the third parable will bring out a much more personal aspect of it all and a really 
a fabulous parable. It'll take us several weeks to work through all the things that are there as we think of the prodigal son or we, or the, the, the loving father, however you want to title that. Okay, so we trust that these things have made sense, and we now shall end our uh, podcast. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your willingness to send to us Jesus, your son, into the world. Why? To die for us, to pay for our sin, and thereby to take away our guilt. For any who do not know for sure they have eternal life, Father, we pray that they can be found. They can see and know that they can be found right now because you're looking. And they're found by faith, being persuaded of your love for them and your grace, your undeserved favor toward them. And by faith, they can believe that you so love them that you gave your only son that if they would believe on him, they will not perish but have eternal life as you have promised. So may they embrace that promise and rejoice with you at their new life given to them freely the moment they're found, the moment they believe, the moment they say yes. All of those are the same thing. And Father, for the believer who's gone astray, who's been struggling, who's been missing out on your joy, we pray the same. That they too can be reminded that they can really never out sin your grace, for your grace is always rises above sin. They can never be outside of your love. They can never be too far at all. That you are always out to find them. You're looking and they can be restored to fellowship again by again in their heart, believing upon your goodness and your grace and your willingness to find them. And then may we rejoice in community with them when they respond. For believers that are walking with you, thank you. May we all the believers together rejoice in community with you as you are seeking and finding the lost. So we thank you for all of that in Jesus' name. Well, be sure to join us next week as we start to look into the parable of the prodigal son. And remember, where the Spirit of God is, there is always hope.